We've been taking our time working through the latter half of Ephesians 5, learning together what it means to be a godly husband, men. And Paul begins this section in verse 25 with kind of a summary statement of what a godly husband does. Namely, he loves his wife, and he loves his wife like Christ loved the church. A godly husband is not one who lords authority over his wife with a fist full of Bible verses. No, rather, he ranks himself under his wife, verse 21, which we will not go back to dissect again. But he ranks himself under his wife with divine love. That leads us to the question, what is love? Well, the world has an answer for that question, as you well know. Someone once said, love is a feeling you feel when you feel like you're going to get a feeling that you've never felt before. And we've seen how that has ravaged our culture. When you build your relationship with your spouse on that kind of superficiality, it cannot stand. It's like the man who built his house on the sand. And the winds blew as they will, and the waves crashed as they do. And that house came tumbling down. It had no roots. It was built on the easy foundation. It didn't take any work. And so it was incapable of standing. But that's not the kind of love Paul is writing about here in Ephesians. The kind of love that God calls a Christian husband to is the kind of love that Christ has for his church. And how does Christ love his church? Well, we saw this four ways. His love is sacrificial, purifying, attentive, and relentless. And if a Christian husband is hoping to turn paradise lost into paradise regained in terms of his marriage relationship... This is the kind of love with which God calls him to serve his wife. Now, as we worked our way verse by verse through this passage, taking note of what a Christian husband is to be and do, we ran last week into a rather perplexing couple of phrases, a perplexing verse, verses 31 and 32. Paul writes this, this is Ephesians 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be... Joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's the statement. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. In other words, Paul is saying that the one flesh relationship between a man and a woman, that's mysterious, to be sure. That's mysterious. But in fact, it is merely a shadow of the great reality that exists in the one flesh relationship. Listen, the one flesh relationship of Christ with his church. Now, that's a mystery. That's a mystery. We hear that kind of talk and we think, what are you talking about? One flesh between Christ and his church? It's exactly what Paul is saying. And I'll tell you, this led me into study these past two weeks, and it absolutely blew my mind. And I am not able to share it all with you this week, but it is absolutely fascinating. We're going to see one half of the reality of it 
And that is Christ's side. And I wish we had time, and maybe next week I will, outside of the context of dealing with marriage. But we may just take some time to look at the the flip side of that, the bride. Where does the bride fit in? And I'll give you a hint. I was sitting with Brent this week talking about this, and it was just so exciting for me to see. As you can take the image of Christ and lay it over this passage... And see his love for the church in a unique way, which is what we're going to do this morning. You can also take the image of the bride and overlay it starting in in chapter 1. And see the glory of the bride. And how God the Father chose for his son a bride. And then poured out upon her gift after gift after gift after gift to prepare her. To be his bride. And then how he reminds her who she was before he chose her. And what he did to make her pure and holy and blessed. And then for the rest of the book he says, Now bride, live in a way that is consistent with that kind of privilege. You are the bride of Christ. Do you know that? Do you know who you are? In the eyes of God and in the eyes of the Lord Jesus who purchased you with his blood. We are the bride. And we live as it were, Paul is saying, in a one flesh relationship with Christ. Now that's a mystery. That's a mystery. It's difficult for us to get our minds around it. In fact... We will never be able to get our minds wrapped all the way around that. But it's important for us to consider. Because the whole premise of Paul's teaching on marriage is built on this rock, this truth, this mystery. That Christ exists in a one flesh relationship with his church. Now, married couples, that's the model. Live up to that. Talk about a high calling. This is the kind of marriage God wants us to have. It's modeled after Christ's relationship with his own bride. And the kind of husband God wants us men to be is the kind that most closely resembles the way Christ relates to his church. And by pursuing that kind of love for our wives, men, we do our part in turning paradise lost back into paradise regained. But you've got to give up the world system. You've got to give up the world's ideology about how your marriage ought to work. You've got to come back to the word. You need to know the truth, because when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But only if you're willing to obey it. Only if you're willing to submit to it. Now, we could spend an enormous amount of time, and an awful number of trees have lost their lives, and a horrible amount of ink has been spilt on what it would look like From the world's perspective, from psychology's perspective, from people's perspective, gleaning passages of Scripture and tweaking them to make it say what they wanted to say, we could could spend an enormous amount of time looking at any number of practical ways a husband can love his wife. 
But rather than getting bogged down into that kind of speculation apart from the word of God, what I want to do this morning is kind of step away from the discussion about the shadow, the shadow of the reality, the shadow being what I think and what I do in my marriage. Even if I do it, it's right. It's merely a shadow. But rather than looking at that, rather than dissecting that, rather than analyzing that and taking surveys about that and putting out statistics about that and examining them, rather than doing that, let's just go to the source. Let's go to the substance, which is Christ, and ask, Lord, how do you love your wife? Let me see how you love your bride. I don't care what anybody else says. Let me see how you love your bride. And then give me the grace to love my bride like that. How does the Bible portray the way the Lord relates to his betrothed? That's the question we need to ask, men. If we're going to be the husbands God wants us to be, if we're going to be the men that God wants us to be and our wives need us to be, we would do well to fix our eyes not upon the latest advice from the most popular psychologist and marriage specialist, but rather upon the Lord Jesus himself, who is the perfect husband. He is the perfect husband. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to consider some characteristics. I told Brent the other day, Brent, i got 17 characteristics that I'm going to preach on. He said, you're going to have to pare that down. So a few hours later, I came back. I said, Brent, I took your advice. i got 16 characteristics. <coughs> and I worked on it some more last night. And so this morning, I want to consider the nine characteristics <laughs> of the perfect husband. That is, nine characteristics of the Lord's love for his church. My goal here is I just want to bless you. Yes, the standard is going to be enormous, men. I was reading the word to our family last night, and we read the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and it got to the end, and, and it said, You must therefore be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you could kind of hear this, what? You mean we should try to be perfect? No, you need to be perfect in order to measure up to God's standard. You say, well, nobody can do that. Exactly. Therefore, we do what? We cry out for mercy. We plead for grace. And so, men, do not hear from my mouth today. Any condemnation. I'm setting the standard up as one who with you pleads for mercy and grace on these. Because to live like Christ will take a miracle. And it's a miracle that all of our wives are praying for. Amen? We kind of hear the women say, Amen, Amen. Can I say that, honey? Amen. And so here we go. Characteristic number one, if you're taking notes. The perfect husband sacrificed himself for his wife. Some of these are going to be repeats of what we've already looked at and some won't. But I want the text to speak for itself. The perfect husband sacrificed himself for his wife. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wife just as 
Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, men, communicating love to your wife has less to do with what you say. It's more about what you do. It's more about what you do. When I counsel people, I often come back to this basic principle that the thing that counts is not what you say, but what you communicate. You say, well, honey, I tell you I love you all the time. And she doesn't know how to get into your head and show you, tell you, but I don't feel loved. You're not really loving me. I'm not, you're not communicating that to me. You say you love me, but you're not treating me like a husband who loves his wife treats his wife. It's not so much about what you say. That's not what counts. It's what you do. It's not what you say. It's what you communicate. You can say, I love you. Well, what did that just communicate? It's not what you say, it's what you communicate. When God set out to communicate to us his love, he didn't shoot an email to us and say, I love you. No, the Apostle John wrote this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to bear the wrath, to satisfy the judge, to appease the anger of the king. The perfect husband communicated his love through personal sacrifice. Personal sacrifice. He communicated to us every time we read his word, in fact. He communicates to us that our well-being was more important to him than his well-being. That he considered our life as more dear to himself than his own life. He communicates to us that our needs are above his needs, as if he had any, but as a man he did. Our comfort is more important than his comfort. Our safety, our joy, our provision. More important to him than his own. That's sacrifice. And that's what God does for us. That's what Jesus did. Talk about a great mystery. That God should condescend to such an extent as to rank himself under the likes of us. That's a mystery. And that's true love. And men, if you want to communicate to your wife that you love her, it doesn't start with the words. It starts with the sacrifice. It starts with the sacrifice. It starts with putting her interests and her feelings and her desires above your own. When it's not an issue of principle, but rather an issue of preference, you go her way. You do what she wants to do. You bless her. You nurture her. You come under her. And when you do that, the words, I love you, become rich with meaning in her ears. It's not just paper money. It's gold. And so the first characteristic of the perfect husband is that he sacrificed for his wife. The second characteristic, the perfect husband sanctifies his wife for himself. Now, we've already discussed the pursuit of holiness in marriage, and that's important. But the word sanctify here, I think, carries another meaning. It carries the meaning of setting apart for oneself. I set it apart for myself. And we do that all the time. 
That's my toothbrush. And don't use it. I set it apart for myself. And I tell you what, when my twins get my toothbrush, sanctity goes out the window. But think about it. In the Old Testament, you know a little bit about the Old Testament. The instruments that were used for the sacrifices, the gold forks and pans and uh, knives and utensils and and all the things that they had for uh, the goblets. You remember the plates and the cups and all the things that they used in the temple service were what? Holy or sanctified unto the Lord. Now, what does that mean? When we think of holy or sanctified, we think morally pure, right? Well, a cup can't be morally pure. It's a hunk of metal. It's an inanimate object. It has no spirit. It cannot be immoral. It is sanctified in the sense that God told his priest, set these apart for my use. These are mine. They are not to be used by the commoner. They are not to be used by non-priests. And they're certainly not to be used by Gentiles. They have a specific function in a specific place in my worship. They're mine. And so you dress a certain way as a priest. You wear a certain kind of head covering. You use certain kinds of utensils. There's plates. There's knives. There are shovels for the ashes. There's all kinds of instruments to be used. They are holy to the Lord. They're mine. And we know that also, right, with the lamb that would be slain, you were to go into your flock and you were to find which one? The best one. You were to find the one without blemish. And you were to take that little lamb and you were to do what with it? You were to sanctify it. You were to set it apart as holy, as special, as separate from the other lambs. Because you had a unique purpose for this lamb. The language here communicates the same thing that Christ did for his church. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed by the washing of water with the word. He sets her apart for himself. That's what Christ has done for the church. Of all the peoples of the earth, he has chosen the church as one among the nations. And he says, this one, this potential bride... This one I choose for myself. She is mine. I sanctify her. He chose her for himself. He set her apart. He raised her up. He began treating her in an exclusive kind of way. God doesn't treat the church like he treats the world. God's plan for the church is absolutely distinct from that of the world. God's affections for his church are infinitely higher than his affections for the world. He has chosen, as, it, as you did, men, over the crowd of women that you could have chosen to be your wife, you chose one, and you said, she's mine and will be mine for life. It's interesting to note that the word church in the English comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. 
He called us out. He called us to himself. You are mine. Come to me, church. And be mine forever. And men, if you are going to love, if we are going to love our wives as Christ loves the church, then we will do things that communicate to her that she is treasured above all women. All the women in the world. You will speak to her with exclusive affection. You will serve her with unique attentiveness. You will share with her your secret thoughts. You will touch her with sacred intimacy. And you will shun all others. In short, you will communicate to her that she alone is the delight of your life. She alone is your treasure. Third, the perfect husband not only sacrifices and sanctifies his wife. Number three, the perfect husband loves his wife despite her faults. He loves his wife despite her faults. Look again at verse 26. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Having cleansed her. What does that mean? What does that imply? It implies impurity, imperfection. In fact, he even goes on and says that he might present her to himself, the church, in all her glory, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Uh, The word wrinkle there is interesting. It means a puckering of the face. (laughs) None of that. He doesn't count any of that against her. And when the church gets to heaven, it's all gone. It's all gone. There's nothing there but glory. There's nothing there but beauty. But the Lord looked at the church And guess what? She's impure. She's impure. The wedding hasn't even happened yet, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb doesn't come until Revelation 16. I mean, we we haven't gotten there yet. We are betrothed to this perfect husband the church is. And the Lord, when he looks at the church, he doesn't see something that's all that glorious. We've got sin all over the place, and we're trying to deal with it. And by his grace, we are becoming more holy. He's purifying us with his word. But he looks at us with all of our imperfections, and he still says, I love you, and you will be mine forever. He didn't enter the relationship with the church ignorant of her sin. To the contrary, he is more aware of our wretched depravity than we will ever be. And he is more offended by sin than we could ever conceive. And yet, he loves us. And he sacrifices himself for us. And he sanctifies us unto himself. And yet we have all of these imperfections. Even Paul said, remember Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, O wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death. Answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. One day I will be delivered. One day there won't be any spot or wrinkle or any imperfection. There will only be glory. But until then... Until then, he loves us. There are many husbands and wives who don't know the intimacy they could, they could have between one another simply because 
they choose not to forgive each other's sin. And it's not that the Lord overlooks our sin, no. No, but as we repent of it, he always forgives. And he doesn't call you to overlook your wife's sin or wives, your husband's sin, but to deal with it graciously, carefully, but to be forgiving. There are marriage problems in the church especially in the West, with all of our freedom and liberty, some of them you just couldn't even imagine. You just could not imagine what goes on between two people who claim to know the Lord Jesus. And a lot of it stems from the fact that one is just offended, that the other has committed some sin. And have they asked for forgiveness? Yes. But it just grates at them. It just eats at them. And they don't want to let it go. Oh, they love the precious doctrine of justification, right? You know what justification means? Simply this. It means to declare righteous. God declares us righteousness, not because of any righteousness that we have worked up in ourselves. It's an alien righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness applied to our account. We are forgiven freely by his grace because of the righteousness of Christ. We love that doctrine. I mean, you feel comfortable coming to church every week. You don't feel condemned by God, do you? You come every week with a sense of freedom. Maybe not the sense of intensity of desire for worship. And if you're a believer, you you hope for more of that and you pray and you work for more of that. But you don't come trembling because of your guilt and your sin, usually, right? We come knowing that we've been forgiven. We are justified. We have been declared righteous. We love that doctrine, even if we can't say substitutionary atonement. Or even if we don't know sola fide. But we love this teaching. But here's the problem. We don't apply it to our marriages. We love the fact that we're forgiven but it never translates into a forgiving spirit toward a mate who has committed sin. Listen, when the Lord found us, guess where we were? We were dead in our transgressions and sin. We just learned that, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And here's the rest of the verse. But God, listen, listen to how he treated us who were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in what? Mercy, because of his what? Great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then in parentheses, by grace you have been saved. That's how the perfect husband loves his wife. Listen, husbands, a little grace will go a long way. A little grace will go a long way. A little biblical forgiveness will communicate volumes more than romantic words and roses and gifts ever could. Does your wife have faults? Sure she does. And so do you. But is your standard higher than God's? He forgives her. Are you greater than God? That may be the problem. 
you may have taken on the Roman version of being the husband. And you believe that you are the deity in the home and God serves you. Lighten up. Get back to the Bible. Understand God has forgiven her. And God has forgiven you. The implications of that for your marriage are awesome. Peter wrote, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. That means once they're confessed, they're over. Once they're owned, it's done. Men, treat your wives the way the Lord has treated you. Where there is imperfection, don't criticize. Where there is a flaw, don't poke fun. Don't expose her before your friends. Don't expose her before her friends. Where there is sin, forgive as you have been forgiven. Don't take your cues from the world. Take them from Christ. He is the perfect husband. Number four, the perfect husband purifies his wife, verse 26, and we've read this, and we've already spoken of this characteristic last week, I believe, but it bears repeating that the Lord Jesus was not satisfied with overlooking the sins of his bride. He didn't forgive them by winking at them and overlooking them, no. He went to great lengths to purify and beautify her by the washing of water with the word. Our responsibility then, men, is if we are to communicate to our wives that we truly love them, we need to serve them by bathing them and our children with the purifying and beautifying water of the Word of God. More than that, you know, it's real easy to look at everybody else's sin, isn't it? More than that, men, we need to model that. We need to be the ones in the family who anyone in the family can look at you and say, that guy right there, he is the one who is first to own his sin. He's first to bring the word of God to bear upon his sin. He's the first to see himself under the judgment of the word of God. And to everyone else, he's gracious. He's gracious. Don't take your cues from the world, men. Take them from Christ. The husband purifies his wife. The perfect husband does. And number five, the perfect husband takes pride in his wife. Look at verse 27. Why does he sanctify her? setting her apart for himself, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, that he might present her to himself, the church, in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. It's interesting to note here that the Lord looks forward to presenting the bride to himself. I didn't see this before studying it out again this week. We all know the normal procedure in a wedding, right? Someone else presents the bride to the husband. The father presents the bride. Or a close friend presents the bride. He brings the bride to the bridegroom in the service. 
And she, having been helped in all of her preparation by others, her upbringing, her education, and even her clothing, and on and on, her talent, her gifts, all of it being helped by her dad or by a close friend and others, the bride is then presented to the bridegroom by someone else. It's as if to say, we have made her ready, and now we give her to you. It has been at huge expense that we have prepared her for this day, and now we believe she's ready, and we give her to you. But not so with the Lord Jesus. Here the Lord presents his bride to himself. And I believe what we see here is that the Lord, being the king of glory, being the only sovereign God, he was the one who not only is going to marry this bride and take care of her forever. Listen, he created her. And he died for her. And he sanctified her. And he purified her. And he is preparing her for that day. It is all his work. It is all his work. Creation, salvation, sanctification. It's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. And when we come on that day for the marriage celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, as Revelation calls it, it will not be anybody else presenting us to Christ. It will be Him presenting us to Himself. And why does He do that? And why does he make such a big deal of it? I mean, you see this all over Scripture. And you see it with Israel in the Old Testament. Why does he do this? Because he himself is the one who prepared her for that day. You know what? Revelation 19 says he even dresses her for the wedding. Where does she get her pure white gown? Guess where it comes from? Revelation 19 says, and she will be given a gown of white, a robe of righteousness prepared for her by him. And notice how she will be presented in this verse. She will be presented in all her glory. In all her glory. In other words, he intends to show her off. He wants the whole world to admire his bride, his chosen one. In chapter 2, verse 7, we've seen this already. In Ephesians, Paul says, So that the age, in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to put, on, put us on display in all of our sinless perfection and glory. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul has alluded to this again when he writes, So that, in the, manif- that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to who? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He wants every living being 
to come and admire his wife, his bride, this church. And so let there be no mistake, the Lord Jesus manifests a holy pride in his bride. He loves her. She is beautiful to him. He wants to be seen with her. He wants to show her off in the world and to the angelic host saying, look at her. Isn't she beautiful? She's mine. She's mine and I love her with an everlasting love. That's my bride. Man, does your wife know that you are proud of her? That you love her? who she is, that you love to be with her, that you love to be seen with her alone? Do you love her as you love yourself? That's how Christ loves the church. And he is the perfect husband. Number six, the perfect husband nourishes his wife, providing for all she needs. Verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Again, we looked at this last time, but let's test ourselves against the standard, men. Are you doing all you can to provide for her, or are you doing just enough to get by? You say, well, she can live with that. It's okay. No problem. Is that your attitude? Or do you rank yourself under her saying, no, it's going to cost me some. It's going to cost me time. It's going to maybe cost me doing something that I don't enjoy doing as much. But I'm going to provide for her. It's amazing how many lazy men there are who claim to be believers. And Paul knew that. He was in the church back in his day. And that's why he said, if a man will not work, then don't let him eat. If he's not working, don't feed him. Because when he gets hungry, guess what he'll start doing? He'll start working. By the way, this happens. This this is great, too, for household chores with your kids. You know, nothing nothing like a little hunger pain. I remind our kids once in a while, you know, in, in the Bible times, they didn't get three squares. They maybe got two. So I think (laughs) maybe you'll do okay, but you are going to work because you need to learn how to provide for the wife that God is going to give you. I love you, son or daughter. Therefore, I will not allow you to be lazy because someday it will be you who is called to nourish your wife, and your children. And if you're lazy, it's not going to be my fault. Sometimes we can be so selfish and so egotistical and so concerned about our comfort. There's no place for that. Seven, connected to this, the perfect husband cherishes his wife. This means that he cares for her and protects her. Men, are you watching out for the things that will harm your wife spiritually and in other ways? But we live in a pretty safe culture. Fort Worth, it's an interesting recent statistic, showed that Dallas was one of the 
the most violent cities in the U.S. I think it was, I don't know, in the top 10 or 15. Fort Worth is one of the safest cities in the U.S. I think we were number 19 on the safest cities list. We're a pretty safe culture. We don't have a lot of worries about people breaking in and doing harm to our families as other believing families do around the world. And yet there are things that can harm our wives. Men, are we being vigilant vigilant to things that may cause her to be tempted and stumble? Are you being careful about what kinds of entertainment you allow in your home? What kinds of books are okay? You know, especially when you're young in your marriage, you need to establish these things. As for me in my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. There are things that we will not do here. Because I love my family. And I'm not only going to nourish, but I am going to cherish. I am going to protect. Sometimes we can put our own selfish interests ahead of our families, caring more about what makes us feel good rather than what's best for them. And that's not right. Men, are we cherishing our wives? Are you watching? I mean, do you watch TV? If you do, man, I hope, I hope you are doing battle there. You're just flipping that thing on and letting it go. You're putting your family in danger. Be careful. The perfect husband cherishes his wife. Number eight, the perfect husband views his wife as his own flesh. I love this. Look at verse 30. Verse 29 says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, verse 30 is fascinating to me. The NAS renders it because we are members of his body. But if you're here today and you're using the King James or the New King James Version, it reads this. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, granted, there is somewhat of a debate about whether that last phrase was part of the original text, certainly there are a number of great manuscripts that include it, but really, these last few words only serve to amplify what's already been said. We are members of his body. What does that mean? Of his flesh and of his bones. We don't need that phrase to conclude what that phrase says. I like the King James Version, though, because it does what the next verse, verse does. The next verse appeals to the Genesis account of creation, the creation of Eve. In Genesis 2.23, concluding the account of how God made Eve, and you remember the story, God brought all the animals to Adam and said, uh, you know, take a look, uh, realize that there isn't, a helpful, uh, there isn't a helper suitable for you, and so before I make one, I want you to look at all the other animals because I want you to see the standard, the pattern here. Every male animal has a female counterpart. It's even true, in a sense, in most plant life. There's a male and a female. And after you get done examining all of that, Adam, it's going to take you a little while, but when you're done, I want you to know for certain that you are incomplete. You're perfect, but you are incomplete. 
Because I got a gift for you that you are not going to believe. And her name is Eve. And Adam says, where's it going to come from? Well, I inserted that. Maybe it's in the Hebrew. And he said, go to sleep. I'll tell you in the morning. (laughs) And so he puts him to sleep. And the text said, God didn't make her out of the dust of the ground. He reached into Adam, took one of his ribs. The point here is a piece of him to make her. That's why his name is man and her name is woman because she is taken from the man. That's what the text says. Now, in Genesis 2.23, concluding that account, Adam says this. He looks at his wife for the first time and he says, wow, (laughs) this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I believe that's what Paul's looking at here. Remember the Genesis account? I mean, the whole illustration of the body of the church goes all the way back there. The church is Christ's body. In what sense? Let's look at Genesis. I want you to see where the church came from. So let's go back and find out where Eve came from. Because Eve is Adam's bride. This is amazing. Paul says in verse 32, This mystery is great. We think he's talking about husband and wife. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to who? Christ and his church. In other words, there is a sense in which the bride of Christ is of his flesh and of his bones. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. How does the church come into being? It's a result of an operation which God performed upon the second man, his only begotten, beloved son on Calvary's hill. A deep sleep fell upon Adam. A deep sleep fell upon the Son of God. He gave up the ghost. He expired. And there in that operation, the church was taken out, as it were. As the woman was taken out of the man, so the church is taken out of Christ. The woman was taken out of the side of Adam. And it is from the Lord's bleeding, wounded side that the church comes. That is her origin. And so she is flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And this is a great mystery. You see what he's saying? Don't misunderstand this. He is not saying that we are God like he is God. What he is saying, and I think what Paul is saying, is, church, you are unique. You are sanctified. You are precious to him because you have been born of him. You were taken from him. And so the perfect husband treats his bride as part of his own flesh. That's what Paul means every time he speaks in Ephesians. You know, we try to get our arms wrapped around this idea of in Christ. Remember, way back, how long has it been since we talked about that in early Ephesians, right? 
What does it mean that we are in Christ? Well, what does it mean that a man and a woman are one flesh? Is there a spiritual disconnect here? Do we have trouble getting our arms around the spiritual reality of being one with Christ? Then think about the oneness of a husband and wife. It's not a perfect illustration, but it is the closest thing that humanity can imagine for two people being one. And that is the way Christ views his church. I've borne you through suffering. You came out of me. I am your source, and I am your head, your authority, and I am your mate, and I love you. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. I mean, anybody who's ever studied that passage in 1 Peter comes away scratching their head saying, can we, can we even understand that? What do you mean we, are, we, we have become partakers of his nature? This is what it means. It doesn't mean that we are God. But it does mean that Christ no longer looks at himself. This is key. He never looks at himself without considering us as well. So that whatever he does and wherever he goes, we are with him, as we will see. The question for us, men, is am I living a, a separate life from my wife? She my roommate, my buddy? Are we pursuing our own dreams and goals and desires? Or is every decision I make based on whether or not it will benefit her as well? Stuart Scott argues that one flesh means something along the lines of woven lines. We are, our lives are woven together. They are inseparable. The oneness God is speaking of seems to be a total sharing of one another. It is a sharing of ideas and beliefs and joys and difficulties and triumphs and failures and possessions and bodies. It is the whole life pulled together into one life so that you can never look at him and say, well, that's him, but, but he's alone. No, if you see him, you've got to think her. If you see her, you've got to think about him because she's incomplete without him. And he, in a very real sense, is incomplete without her. The amazing thing here is what Christ does to himself in this arrangement in order to be the perfect husband. Man, is that how you view your wife? It's how Christ views the church. And it is a great mystery. Number nine, the perfect husband left his father for his wife. Verse 31 Again, Paul quotes from Genesis 2. The first one was 2.23, and this is 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. We've already discussed the one flesh relationship between Christ and his church, but notice, too, that the Lord even left father in order to take his bride. It's amazing to me when I saw this this week. That the very pattern that God calls us to is the pattern that Jesus followed all the way to the end. 
So that on the cross, he cries out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that willingly. Not only that, but Philippians 2, 5 and 6, Paul says, Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What's the point? The Lord Jesus humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He left his father. He left his father in a way that he had never left his father before he became a man. Why? So that he could get for himself his bride. Why did Jesus set aside what was rightfully his in the presence of his father? He made the sacrifice because he loved this bride. And that's what love does, does it not? Paul begins that text, by the way, in Philippians. Men, he says this, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Men, is that your attitude? Are you giving up what was yours at home with your mom and dad to take on the blessed responsibility of caring for your bride? Are you setting aside those old interests, those old, line of, those old lines of authority? Are you humbling yourself for her sake? Are you more concerned about what your mom and dad's opinion about your life and marriage are? Or are you more concerned about your wife's? Christ has not called us to do anything he was not willing to do for us. All of it shows Christ's incomparable love for us, his church. And this, beloved, is indeed a great mystery. The purpose of Christian marriage is simply to set on display how much Christ loves his church. The purpose of marriage is not to get all that you can get until you've got it all and move on to someone else who can give you more. No, the purpose of marriage is to set on display for the world Christ's love for his church. Everything comes out of that. Now just think about what the Bible says concerning all of this outside the book of Ephesians. Are you ready for this? Very quickly. Number one, Christ shares his life with his bride. Colossians 3, 4 says, when Christ Who is your life, church? When he appears, you also will be revealed with him in glory. What is the life of the bride? What is the life of the bride? It is her husband, the church. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Number two, Christ shares his name with, a, with his bride. Revelation 3.12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God. We are Christians. You know what that means? Little Christs or belonging to Christ. You belong to him. And by the way, interestingly enough, we have... A symbol of marriage, right? It's the wedding ring. And the symbol of the marriage for the believer is, guess what? 
baptism. Number three, Christ shares his glory with his bride. Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, that blows us away, right? We think, wait a minute. Did I read that right? Is it in the Greek right? He seated us with him in glory as if it's past tense. What's that about? Well, we are his bride. We are his betrothed. It only makes sense that the bride that he has joined himself with will sit beside him on his throne. He is king. She is his queen. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, that we will judge angels. We will judge the angels of God. I mean, the church will judge the angels of God? I mean, how do we warrant that? Where do we get that privilege from? Where do we get the authority to do that? Who are we? Lord, what is man that you are even mindful of him? To which the Lord responds, you're not just a man anymore. You're not just a woman anymore. You're not just a child anymore. You're the bride of Christ. And all that is his is now yours. You will judge angels. Why? Because Christ considers us a part of himself now. We are his bride. We share his glory. Number four, Christ shares his interests, his plans, his purposes with his bride. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. You know what that means? God has a plan for the ages. And while the world is shooting satellites to Mars, trying to figure out where where life came from, the king whispers into his wife's ear and says, Honey, Let me tell you the plan. There is a mysterious thing going on here. And it's a mystery because I don't reveal this to everybody. And I don't give to everybody a heart that can receive it. But to you, I tell it all. Everything is going to be summed up in Christ. And one day you will see, sitting by my side, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the plan. Christ shares his interests. And we now become co-laborers with Christ. Number five, Christ shares his possessions with his bride. The next verse, Ephesians 1.11 reads, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. We receive an inheritance. Why? Because everything that belongs to him now belongs to us. Romans 8.7, God, uh, the Apostle Paul calls us co-heirs. Not just co-laborers, but co-heirs. We are heirs together with Christ. And what do we inherit as his bride? What do we inherit? Well, what would you think that we inherit as the bride of the one who owns everything? Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. I mean, you should be sitting in your office one day, and somebody ought to come up to you and say, What's that smile on your face for? Just thinking. What are you thinking about? I'm going to inherit the earth. (laughs) It's all going to be mine. 
Romans 8, 7, we are heirs of Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says this, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Do you get it? It's all yours. Why are you fighting over it? Christians fighting over getting their way, getting something good, getting something that if they don't get it, somebody else will. And Paul says, don't you understand? It's all yours anyway. Just be patient. Number six, Christ shares. You ready for this? Christ shares his servants with his bride. If everything else were not incredible enough, Christ also shares his angels with us. The author of Hebrews asks, are, not, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? They're his servants. Therefore, they're our servants. We're his bride. And since we are married to him, his servants are our servants. Number seven and last, Christ shares his troubles and his sufferings with his bride. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, get ready. Because they're not going to like you either. If they have persecuted the husband, they will persecute the wife. If they hate him, they will hate us. And we are called to bear up under that suffering with him, knowing that it's temporary and knowing that in heaven it secures for us a weight of glory beyond our ability to comprehend because it will prove that we are his. Men, do you see why the Bible calls us to such a high standard in how we love our wives? Do you see the kind of service that you are to render your wife as you lead her? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In the fear of God, we come and we love and we serve and we lead graciously. Do you see why we are called to do that? It is because God wants to set on display the glory of Christ's love for his church. Our marriages, listen men, you must see this. If you think it's about you, you'll never do it. You'll never pursue this. Because you'll think, well, I'm not worthy of that. And I don't care. I'm happy. Hey, it's fine with me. I don't care if she doesn't like me. I'm, I'm, I'm content with that. Well, guess what? You've just made yourself an idol. The question is, who is your Lord? Is it you? Are you worshiping you? Are you worshiping him? You'll do this to the extent that you say, Lord Jesus Christ, he is my God. I love him. He's made me part of his bride. Therefore, in my marriage, regardless of whether or not my wife respects me, I will love her. As Christ loves the church. You want respect, men? Love. As Christ loves the church. Remember that our marriages are but a shadow. The substance is Christ and his love 
for the bride. And so I ask, men, how are we measuring up to the perfect standard that Christ has set for us in terms of loving our wives? Do you sacrifice yourself for her? Do you sanctify her as the only object of your affections? Does she know that you love her despite her faults? Are you bathing her in the beautifying and purifying water of the Word of God? Does she know that you take pride in being her husband? Do you nourish her, providing faithfully and sacrificially for all of her needs? Does she sense that you cherish her and protect her? Is she a high priority in your life, as high as your own flesh? And does she see that you have left all to cleave to her? The nine characteristics of a perfect husband. It's a high calling. But it's an unspeakably blessed calling. And if you desire that your marriage move from paradise lost to paradise regained, then I commend to you the pattern God has given. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Amen. Father, we praise you for this pattern that you have established for us and for giving us understanding